Hello, everybody. Good to be back on a new episode of Ask Abhijit, episode 69. I hope you're all doing very well. As you know, today is a episode is an episode in which I'll take questions from the comments that you have uh, put in my uh, channel. So that's what we will be doing today. I wish you all a very good evening, very good day, wherever you are. And let's get right into it. So let us begin with question number one. Question number one is by Vishal. Apart from India, as you mentioned often, which are the few countries which can probably be major powers in the future? France comes to mind immediately. Your take. So let's understand what's a major power. There are several categories of powers, global powers. There is the superpowers. Then you have uh, great powers. Then you have regional powers. And then you have uh, insignificant powers or peripheral powers. So a superpower is a nation, a country that can influence events in the world anywhere in the world at any time of their choosing. So that's a superpower. As of today, only the US is a true superpower. When we, when we come to great powers, we could say China is a great power. Maybe Russia is a great power because they have this. Uh, China has this economic might and also a regional military might. So it cannot influence things all over the world yet at any time of their choosing. But they are trying to reach that, st that status. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the Russians have this enormous uh, nuclear arsenal, very powerful armed forces and all that, which makes them a major power. Now, when it comes to regional powers, you have powers that can influence things in the region if they wish to. India is one. India doesn't do anything to influence things in its neighborhood, but if it wishes to, it can. So India is a regional power. France is a regional power. The UK is, in a way, a regional power, even though it's actually a vassal of the United States, and so on. So these are the major powers that we have today. Turkey is trying to become a regional power or even a great power. Iran, you can say, is a regional power. I Israel is a regional power. And I'm sure I must have missed one or two, but there, there you go. So which countries can probably become major powers in the future? Well, there are a number of countries who have the, which have the potential in the next 20, 50 years to become major global powers. India is one. Uh, China, of course, aspires to become a superpower. Then you have France, you have Turkey, you have Iran. Iran is quite crippled by Western sanctions, American sanctions and all that. It still aspires to become a great power. So, yeah, these are the countries I can think of. So some people talk about Brazil because it's such a large country and it has a, it has a good economy. Even South Africa, some people speak about. Australia, well, Australia is not really uh, to be considered because it's an another country that's in the satellite uh, orbit of the United States. So uh, I would say that there is a higher probability of Russia, India, France becoming great powers in the future. I don't see uh, maybe even Turkey, uh, if, if they are allowed to. Turkey is now hedging its bets. It's it, it used to, it is still a member of NATO. It was a US ally, but now it is it is uh, moving towards China and Russia. So the Turk Turks have their own ambitions, which are uh, not aligned with those of the West and so on. So these are the few countries, probably potentially potentially, which could become great powers in the future. Uh, of course, I hope India is one of them, and India becomes the one that uh, that it becomes one of the top three or top four powers in the world in the next twenty years.
Shri Ram Reddy Padmati has asked this 500 times at least. So, okay, so what, first before this, uh, there are some people who have this habit of uh, copy-pasting one question dozens of times. Please don't do that. It's a, it's a humble request. Please don't do that. It, it kind of clogs up the channel. Please don't do that. Just ask your question once. I In the future, if people do that, I will be forced to not take that question just because you're spamming. So please... Please don't do that. I would like to take everyone's questions. I get thousands of questions every week. It's very unlikely that any particular person's question will be picked. But I pick questions that will be useful to everyone. So please, let's keep it like that. Thank you. So the question is, uh, please throw some light on how did the Nizam rulers manage to, held, uh, to hold on to the Deccan region of India, even though all the Turkic rulers were kicked out by the British? I am a resident of Telangana and you're being they are being glorified by the secular government of the state. Please throw some light on the atrocities done by them in the region. Well, the Nizams were actually... The original uh, purpose of the Nizams was to act as administrators of the so-called Mughal Empire, which is the Turkic Mughal Empire, right? So that is what their original function was. As the uh, Turkic Mughal Empire became weak and... Uh, it was no longer in power in much of the country, then these Nizams became independent and they became their own rulers. So they became the rulers of this region of India, the southeast region of India. So that's what uh, they were ruling. It was essentially a kingdom, a dynastic kingdom. There were, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, I don't know, whatever number of Nawabs. You can look it up online. Okay, all the information is there. So the Nawabs were in power because they were no longer... Uh, uh, because the uh, Mughal Empire kind of became, started crumbling. So, what were the atrocities? They did all kinds of atrocities. The standard Turkic atrocities that Turks have done all across India. The standard atrocities were also done by the Nizams. If you look at their Wikipedia page, I think they are alleged to have donated funds to temples and all that. Uh, very interesting. Very, very nice. Yeah. Wikipedia should never be trusted. Remember that. And if they donated some money here and there to some temples, it doesn't offset the atrocities they did. Uh, so, so why did the Nizams manage to hold on to this region after the Turks were kicked out by the British? The British did not kick any Turks out. They kept the Nawabs of Awadh going on. Uh, the, in, in Bengal, you had some Turkic uh, people, some Turkic rulers who were still in power. Right? And uh, in in Telangana in southern India, you had the Nizams who were in power. So that and and also you had the Nawabs of Pataudi, etc., who were clients of the British. So it's not like the British kicked all the Turks out of India. The reason why these Turks and the Nizams were able to hold on to power is because they were of some use to the British. They offered their allegiance to the British. And they said that we will rule this region on your behalf. We will collect taxes on your behalf. And we will send the taxes to you and enrich you. And you can come and do whatever you want in our region. You can have your political officers here. You can have your rules and laws that we will implement. And that's how it was done. If after 1857, every single so-called princely state, every single king or queen or nizam or nawab who, hold, who held on to power, was simply a British puppet. They all had British political officers in their court. They were told what to do and what not to do. They had to implement British laws, not their own laws. They had to send taxes to the British. And everything was essentially uh, run in the British way. 
so they had very little power left but they were simply uh, in charge of administration and they had certain privileges that the british gave them in exchange for their services so they were simply clients of the british and that's why the nizams were able to hold on to power and after 1947 they tried to usurp power and, and not become a part of india and in 1948 that was taken care of so there were these terrible atrocities that they unleashed on the native population of the region they had this terrorist army called the razakars some of their descendants are now politicians now you see that's how it goes so that in short is the story they were the, the turks were never kicked out by the british the british used certain turks descendants of turks and all these so called rulers nawabs and whatever else as their own puppets to perpetuate and spread their rule across india adarshini says some people say that india can never there are how many questions like four three four three questions i'll take one some people say that india can never develop because of the presence of a large number of festivals or holidays due to the celebration of different festivals every year what's your opinion on this you know what you all i think if you are watching this channel you know that india was the most economically developed country in the world before the british came in even during the turkic era turkic occupation of india the gdp was slowly going down but it did not it did not dis- get destroyed precipitously like the british did it so according to the research by the uh, economic economist angus madison madison india was the largest economy of the world throughout much or most of known history from 0 ad until until 1500 ad or 1700 ad or so approximately india accounted for at least one third of the entire world's gdp yes yes we know that and before that india would have accounted for at least a half of the world's gdp that's how vast india's ancient uh, civilization was and that's how developed it was i would not be surprised if you if history if, if economists do a proper study and find that india accounted for two thirds of the world's gdp that's how massive this this civilization was and that's how advanced and developed it was and we know that there has been cultural continuity in india for the past 10000 years archaeological evidence has proven this without beyond any shred of a doubt so we have had the same culture that we have today in india for 10000 years same festivals we celebrated then what happened in the past why did the, the celebration of so many festivals not hamper india's economic development how come that's the simple question you have to ask yourself right so my answer is very simple everybody doesn't stay at home when they're celebrating festivals you have lots of different local festivals in different parts of india certain festivals are are celebrated throughout the civilization across the world like diwali and and certain things like that and those are holidays and then you have various local holidays that certain people uh observe certain other people people of other regions don't observe it doesn't do anything any harm to the economy it is a brilliant beautiful culture that we have so many festivals that people can indulge in partake in if they wish to right it is it is a manifestation of the incredible richness brilliance beauty diversity and depth of india's civilization 
so i don't know where these ideas come from i'm sure it is the the school teachers and college teachers and professors and media etc who put this in, into people's heads that india's ancient festivals are terrible they are bad for the environment they cause economic damage to the country there's too much uh, too many people going on leave and all, all that come on look at the past 10000 years of history how did india become so great economically etc technologically scientifically in all spheres how did it happen we had the same festivals earlier come on think think logically think think bigger don't look at the world from a very narrow time frame look at it from a big picture perspective and then all your all your questions and all your doubts will automatically get cleared <laughs> Somidip says how valuable is it for india that india wins the miss universe title is it something to feel proud of how does it help in women's empowerment i'm asking this as i don't know what the competitions are about but the social media is full of it that's why i'm curious to know about it and and its value and its importance so how let's start with women's empowerment if an indian girl if an indian lady wins a miss world miss universe miss whatever else how does it empower women in india i'll tell you how it empowers them it empowers them to try to attain those artificial cosmetic beauty standards by using revlon and nivea and 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 l'oréal and all these western cosmetic brands and to dye your hair and to to starve yourself half to death to achieve that that uh, weird supermodel physique shape figure whatever you call it and so on what is what, how does it empower women i fail to understand right so uh, let's understand why <laughs> the miss universe title uh, exists it exists it has sponsors it exists to promote certain industries to to further the the uh the interests of certain industries mainly all these superficial industries like cosmetics and all that right and and various fashion brands and all that so in the past you remember that uh, venezuela venezuela used to win the miss universe uh, title a lot but in then about 10 years ago the venezuelan economic economy crashed and after that they have not won a single title as far as i remember maybe one maybe here and there but nothing major like they used to all of us it so how, how did this happen and how does it coins why does it coincide with the crash of the venezuelan economy it's because they can the venezuelan people are now very poor and they can no longer afford these expensive cosmetics and so what's the point of promoting their ladies and and giving them titles because they are no longer buying our products now india at the turn of the century i think when was it in the late 90s i think india won a few miss world miss universe titles aishwarya rai sushmita sen yukta mukhi etc 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 some of uh, uh, our girls won these titles it's when the economic reforms had been done and india was seen as a big emerging market so yeah yeah, yeah let's capture their their market and let's push, let's push our products there and now again india's economy is again the fastest growing economy in the whole world today isn't it after the the slowdown of the pandemic today india is the fastest growing economy so once again they are focusing on india and they want indian girls to buy these useless cosmetic products which add a layer of extra superficiality to you and that's it and that's why they are doing it it's all about marketing it's all about the indian market they see india as a big market of consumers and that's why they are trying to woo india and of course there's also the woke signaling yeah i mean now this lady whoever she is she the, the latest lady who won the title she's going to go on a world tour and and spout all the same slogans 
women's empowerment in the green world whatever whatever is is in vogue right now whatever is the latest fashion uh, maybe she can call up greta thunberg and take a couple of tips from from her so that's what it's all about and she will happily do it because it 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 uh, furthers her career in this industry right i remember a couple of days ago on twitter they were pushing her profile yeah you please subscribe to this, this please follow her she is somebody who matters how does she matter who is she so that's how it is so you see that's the reason why these miss world and miss universe etc titles are given out handed out to countries uh in the past when india was not doing well economic economically during the nehruvian era the nehruvian rate of growth i think india won only one title in like 50 years or so give or take and that's how it is it's all about money it's all about the economy it's all about the fashion industry cosmetics uh, other brands clothing brands and so so on and so forth so that's the real reason for doing this okay this is a couple of questions yash says considering the rich indian culture do you think animation and games will help indian culture proliferate with the advent of web 3.0 and the second one is what are your thoughts on gaming video gaming esports in general do you personally play used to play any video game how can india enter the games industry and produce games with indian stories like movies and music games can also play an essential role in influencing young minds especially when games are played usually played by teenagers and youngsters can we make a world class game with excellent graphics and an appealing story you know what this is a very good these are very good questions first question by yash considering the rich indian culture can animation and games help indian culture proliferate with the advent of web 3.0 certainly see how japanese culture has proliferated throughout the world how did that happen it it happened because of their anime and their games so J- japan is a gaming superpower it has produced so many so many various games they have entire uh, companies that produce various games uh, they are the pioneers of the gaming industry and they are also the pioneers in anime they have so many interesting uh, anime series etc that people love even though they are in japanese they are all dubbed or whatever or we have subtitles but the stories are very interesting they are really well made and you will see elements of japanese culture throughout all of these things throughout the anime series throughout the games and so on and because of this this is, this is called software this is how you uh, use software and that, that's how you build soft power so that's why people have such a very uh, positive uh, impression of japan that's why people are so interested in japanese culture people have such a high regard for japanese culture because of the way it is portrayed in anime and in gaming and when it comes to indian culture the reverse is true it is portrayed so negatively in media first of all india doesn't produce anime we anime uh, animated serials right animated series and all that and it's strange considering the fact that most hollywood studios use indian companies for their visual effects special effects all that so india has the technology india has the ability india has the minds india has the manpower to create world class animation and all that special effects and all that and yet india doesn't produce anything right india doesn't it's because there's no investment in, in this let's say somebody has an interesting idea to produce a series let's say someone wants to create uh, a new version of the uh, a new uh, version of the ramayan let's say 
in anime form. That's a long, big project. At least 50 episodes, I would say, or 100 episodes, if you want to do it properly and, 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 uh, and thoroughly. But that's a long project, and who's going to fund this? There's no funding available to this. Bollywood has the funding, but they have an anti-India agenda. So, you know, that's, that's the reason why uh, these things are not happening in India. It will certainly help Indian culture proliferate worldwide if this is done. If Indian animation studios uh, are set up, it will not take a lot of investment, maybe a few crores. And this can be done. It's very interesting. You need a wide range of artists working together for this sort of work. But it will help India's culture finally break free of the shackles of Bollywood and all the Hindu-phobic establishment that we have here. If private companies can start this. That same applies to games. I've heard of a couple of games, one or two games that have some Indian elements, elements of Indian culture, but nothing much at all. So yes, it is certainly something that is very important and it can certainly take off. I'm sure that Indian kids would love to play games that have an Indian theme in an Indian context and watch anime that has Indian context, certainly. And today the thing is that the, in the entire attention of the youngsters is in anime and gaming. There's no doubt about it. In the 21st century, in the second, in the third decade, it's all going to be the world of the teenagers, the youngsters, Generation Z, the Zoomers, right? They're going to take over the world. And their attention is all online in, in Web 3.0, like you say. In gaming, they are all gamers. They, they can game on their mobile phones. They can game on big screens. They have PlayStations, DVD, I mean, um, Xboxes and whatnot. So why doesn't India produce anything? That's the thing. That's the that's the terrible thing. Give me a 100 crore rupees, I'll do it. <laughs> so you know what? That's, that's how it is. That's the reason why it is uh, Indian culture is not proliferating. Esports is also another interesting thing. Uh, what are my thoughts? It's there. It is there. It's the future. Embrace it, right? I mean, uh, people need entertainment. People need a diversion from their work, from their studies, etc. And this is the, the thing of choice. It immerses you into a different universe, into a different world. It gives you a break from the world you live in. It's, it's what people seek. Whether we like it or not, that's how the future is going to be. So we should embrace it. And I would like to see Indian animation studios and Indian gaming companies come up that produce some uh, original work that is Indian themed. Did I play any video games? I have never really had the, have the, had the time to play video games. I was always studying when I was a kid and later I was working. So I've never had the time. I had a PlayStation. I had a PlayStation. I hardly ever used it. So yeah, I, it's certainly interesting. It's fun as well. I've played a few games, but uh, not very much personally. Okay, Suyash says, I tried to ask this question a lot of times, but I saw it now. Uh, I'm an aspiring filmmaker and science lover. I want to do something in the science fiction genre. Can you please suggest in which direction, topic, field I should work on as Hollywood is making science fiction movies for many decades and it has explored so much? What's left for us or what should our approach be for science fiction? You know, as a filmmaker, you have to unleash your creativity. The truth is that every story has already been told. That's the cliche in the in the literary world and in the, in, in the film world. Every story has already been told. We have the hero's journey and so on and so forth, right? And yet you have interesting movies coming out every year. You have interesting literature coming out every year. You have 
path-breaking sci-fi literature coming up from time to time. So it's all about unleashing your creativity. There is so much you can do from an Indian perspective. You can, if you're a science lover, science fiction lover, you must have read lots of uh, science fiction stories, novels, etc. Why don't you interpret it in a different way? All these stories are set in the West. Why don't you give them Indian characters and some Indian twists and try how it works? If I had the time, if I was a filmmaker, I would have a thousand projects to work on. I would have to work on one at a time and I would feel like one life is not enough. So what you need to do is take an existing story and redefine it, reinterpret it. Give it your own original twists, which will make it completely different. That's what you need to do. And you have so many uh, themes from Indian history, from Indian culture, from, senior, from Indian civilization that the West has tried to appropriate into science fiction. Right? So we can re reclaim these in, in our uh, filmmaking. So you can explore science fiction stories with your own interpretation. You can explore even fantasy stories. You can uh, go back to the time, the, the era in India when we had Vimanas, apparently, and and, tr and try and riff on that. So there's so much you can do. I cannot give you a specific idea that this is what you should work on, but this is the direction that you should be looking at. Be original, be wildly creative, and reinterpret the one story that has already been told. Reinterpret it into a, in, in a variety of ways. You can you can add lots of different characters, different different setting, different context, different world, different time frame, different era, different technology. There is so much you can do. Unleash your imagination and your creativity. All the best, my friend. I hope to see you succeed. Akash asks, can you please give your opinion about the collision of the Titanic? Some researchers say that a head-on collision with minimal speed would have saved it from sinking. Others say it would have accelerated the sinking. What are your opinions on it, considering you're a physicist and this includes ship's structural strength and velocity? Well, I haven't studied the causes of the destruction of the, of the, of the sinking of the Titanic. What I can say conceptually is this. We, we have some data. We know this was a new ship. It was sailing uh, from one place to another, point A to point B. It uh, was in the North Atlantic. It struck an iceberg, a huge block, floating block of ice, which is even larger below the surface. And there was flooding in the ship and it went on unabated. And because of that, it, it, it sank. Now, here's the thing. When you build a ship, a large ship, for instance, you compartmentalize it. You compartmentalize the hull in such a way that there are lots of sealed off chambers in the hull. The hull is long like this. And inside the hull, there are lots and lots of sealed off chambers. So even if there's a breach in the hull, water rushes in, you can simply seal that chamber off and the ship is fine. And then you can take it for repairs. This is how ships, ships are built in the military, in, in the cruise lines etc. In the case of large oil tankers, super tankers, you ha also have this compartmentalization because it, it was observed in the past Then, when you have a huge cavity in the oil super tanker filled with oil, then the, when the oil starts sloshing, it can easily capsize the ship. So that's why they created all these small, small, small compartments into which the oil is uh, poured and then that effect is minimal and negligible even if there is very rough weather and still the ship is stable. 
So similarly, in the case of um, the breaching of the hull, you have these compartments. I think the Titanic also would have had these compartments, but for some reason, there was something faulty with it. I I don't quite recall. It's many years since I studied this thing. But clearly, there was some structural uh, problem. That either the compartments were not sealed off or, the, uh, or they were defective, and that's why the entire ship got flooded and it capsized. And maybe there could have been some... Uh, strength issue as well because we know that the top hull fell off when it was sinking uh i think the ship was made of cast iron or some some it was a very modern ship for its time i believe um and i'm not sure if it if it hit the iceberg head on or it was a glancing blow most likely it was a glancing blow from one of the sides the port side starboard side i'm not sure but one of these sides was struck there was a longish tear in the hull and for some reason, the flooding went on unabated. It was not sealed off. So that's what I can say about the Titanic. It's a, there, are, there are many ships that have sunk, but for some reason, this is one of the most uh, famous one, iconic one, because it's it's been turned into at least a couple of movies. When I was a kid, I saw one movie from, I don't know, how many years ago about the Titanic. There was not a stupid love story like the, like the newer one. I'm sure lots of people are fans of the James Cameron version. I found it really boring. First of all, the sea that they showed was completely placid. There was no, it was not choppy at all. So it looked fake. And secondly, they turned the whole thing into a fictitious love story, which was really boring for me from my perspective. Anyway, so yeah, that's what I can say in, from, from a big picture perspective that there must have been some defect in the engineering of the Titanic because when the hull is breached, you're supposed to be able to seal it off. And that's what, that is the main thing that did not happen. Even if there's a breach, even if the material is not strong enough, as long as you can breach, I mean, you can fill the breach by sealing off certain compartments, you're fine. That's what did not happen. Adarsh says, is it true that cuisines like jalebi, rajma chawal, biryani, mutton curry, vegetables like potato, tomato, onion, garlic, apple and wheat were all brought to India by outsiders? You know, if you ask your teachers, your school teachers, your college teachers, the, the so-called professors in universities, they will tell you everything came from outside. India mein toh kuch tha hi nahi. There was nothing in India. We all got everything. Everything of value came from outsiders, came with outsiders. They blessed us with blessed us with all these wonderful things. With their, with their superior culture, they uplifted us from our backwardness because we were so backward. Indian culture is backward. And these foreigners who came to India became Indians. They're not foreigners anymore. No, no. Once, the, once you are on Indian soil, you become Indian. And then they blessed us with their rich, superior culture and all these wonderful things they brought to India. How true is this? Forget about the culture. The culture argument is different. But uh, let's talk about biryani. Hmm? Biryani is uh, Turkic, right? Biryani is Turkic. It came from Central Asia. Point number one, Central Asia is not a Turkic region. It has been an Indian region for thousands of years. Only in the past thousand years or so, the Turks took, took over the place. Okay. And they conducted a genocide which has never been recorded. All the original people were wiped out. The women were spared for obvious reasons. And today's uh, people from these regions, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, etc., 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 these are all descendants of those women and the Turkic invaders. Right. So, Central Asia is not originally the homeland of the Turks. The homeland of the Turks was far to the east in present-day northern China. 
Okay. So Central Asia was an Indian region. Many of the, the things like possibly it is it is claimed by some people, some scientists apparently, that wheat originally grew in the Central Asian region. And it and then in that case, India had extensive contacts with the Indians who settled in Central Asia. We know that there were multiple waves of migrations outside of India thousands of thousands of years ago after the ten the, the, the battle of the ten kings and many other waves of migrations and these people all centered uh, settled in central asia uttara madra uttara kuru these regions were called right and india had extensive contacts with these people so if something new grew there that would have been introduced into india at that time not because of the goddamn turks right when it comes to tomatoes potato etc these are uh, native to to Central America, to, to, to the Americas, not to Eurasia. So these vegetables were introduced into the whole of Eurasia, not into India only, into the whole of Eurasia by the brutal Spanish colonizers of the Americas. So they went to America, they did whatever horrors they had to perpetrate there, and then they brought back all these interesting vegetables, etc., and fruits to Eurasia where they were planted and then they have become part of the staple diet of, of countries uh, across Europe and Asia. Uh, potatoes, tomatoes, chilies, uh, the chili peppers and all that, right? So the, the Turks had nothing to do with this. But before that also we had black pepper which gives a very pungent, spicy uh, taste to food. So Indian food was always the same. Uh, when it comes to biryani, let's say, now they say the Turks brought biryani to India. Does rice grow in Central Asia? Simple question. If the Turks brought India brought, brought biryani to India, they must have brought something that grew there, right? Does rice grow in Central Asia? If rice doesn't grow to grow in Central Asia, how is biryani a Turkic dish? We have had different forms of pulao. Now they even call it biryani or whatever in India for thousands of years. We we know that rice is a staple in India. It has been a staple since the uh, Saraswati Sindhu days. So these are all lies. They are claiming these things without any evidence whatsoever. What happens in academia is that one so-called researcher, so-called researcher, publishes a paper which somehow gets accepted in one of the journals. This paper is going to be without any evidence. It's going to be garbage paper, but it somehow gets accepted in some journal. And then 15 people, they cite their paper to make the same claim. And then five book authors cite those 15 papers to further strengthen the claim. And then on the basis of one false, fictitious, incorrect, garbage paper, an entire industry is created. And then this is accepted as fact. That's how they manufacture data. And that's how they manufacture claims and narratives. So do not believe this nonsense. Uh, all these things, much of these things, they are Indian in origin. I don't know about Jalebi and Rajma, Chawal. Rajma again has been growing in India, you know, kidney beans for thousands of years. Chawal is Indian, right? So they're trying to say that your culture is weak and inferior and it was very thin and we got more things from outside and that's how your culture is what it is today. Ganga, Jamuni, Tehzeeb or whatever the hell that is. Don't believe that. It's all nonsense. YN says, I learned in convent school. What's a convent school? A convent school. It's a conversion factory, isn't it? A convent school. Anyway, 
I learned in convent school that, and my history teacher used to mention that Rajputs did not like girl children and they were more favorable towards male child or male children. She even said that small female infants were killed in hot boiled milk. Oh my God. It was not even mentioned in, anywhere in NCERT books, but she used to say that without quoting any source. There are there were about 40 kids in our, in our class and she was a history teacher in multiple classes, year after year, different class, new set of children. I think when I was a kid, even I read this sort of garbage in some history textbook. The Rajputs used to practice female infanticide as a matter of routine. So then how did Rajputs continue their, their, their uh, generations if there are no females? The thing is, this is a lie that has been repeated thousands of times by our history textbooks, history teachers, professors, etc. Where is the basis for this claim? They say that Rajputs used to drown their girl children, their infant girls, in water or, or milk or boiling milk because apparently they were they were fond of cruelty, it looks like. Now let's examine the, the, the truth about Rajputs. We know that the, the, the Rajputs were very idealistic. They believed in following rules, in following dharma, whatever they thought was dharma. They forgot Chanakya's dharma, but okay, fine. Some of their leaders followed forgot Chanakya's dharma. For instance, Prithiraj Chauhan. So they even were so magnanimous and, and uh, abiding to the rules that they would even allow their enemies to benefit from their mercy. Even though the benefit, even though the enemies were adharmis, they were here to destroy Indian civilization and to massacre Indians. And yet they would uh, give them the same treatment they would give to an Indian. So that's how magnanimous they were. That's how uh, Dharmic they were in a sense, right? They they believed in rules, they believed in the mariyada of the dharma and don't ever break it because rules are rules and we must be honorable. We must be honorable, we must be virtuous, we should not be seen to be doing anything adharmic. That was the conduct of the, of the Rajputs. Now tell me, does that gel with this narrative that they mass that they murdered helpless infant girls, their own children? A person who is that dharmic would he do that? Makes no sense. Makes no sense whatsoever. And where is the origin of this claim? Where is it? Where is the source of this claim? Where is the factual evidence that corroborates this claim? Yes, in extreme circumstances, Rajput ladies, girls had to self-immolate in Johar when their men went for the last battle in Kesaria against the Turks. That was simply an act of desperation because they knew that if they survived and their men died, they knew exactly what the Turks would do to them. So they had to commit uh, suicide and actually incinerate their bodies because even dead bodies were not spared by the Turks. Right. So that is a totally different thing. But because of this, people have embellished this by adding on this female infanticide thing to, uh, to the story. So there is no factual basis to this claim. This is simply something that has been done to malign the Rajputs to give them a bad name, it is completely fake, entirely 100% fake. Some G says, the Gupta Empire had control over almost the whole of India. Still, one person chose not getting into any leisure lifestyle, staying unmarried, sleeping in the most difficult places around the Himalayas, and much more just for protecting the people of India and defeating foreign invaders. Would it be appropriate to call Skandagupta a real-life Bahubali? 
Maybe, yeah, maybe. The thing is this. In the Western world, in Europe, kings, princes, knights, etc., they enjoyed lives of great luxury. Everybody was a peasant, everybody was a serf, everybody was owned by the by the ruler, by the aristocracy. They were the nobility and everybody else was the, was the commoners and they lived in big palaces, they had incredible luxury, everybody else lived in misery. That is what we have come to expect because of our education system, that all kings are like this. In India, kings were servants of the people. That's what they were. So kings had very one very simple objective. The, the king had only the king or the queen or whoever the ruler is had only one job, only one duty to ensure the long-term security and prosperity of the nation and the people, of the kingdom and the people, of the empire and the people. That's what it was. Their entire life was dedicated to this one purpose. Read the Arthashastra by Vishnugupta Chanakya. It lays out very clearly the duties of a king. The king doesn't get to sit and idly and have leisure time. The king sleeps four hours a night. And the entire remainder of the period, he is dedicating himself to the service of the civilization, the service of Dharma, service of the people, service of the empire. So, Skandakupta, while his actions are admirable, he dedicated his life to uh, defeating the Shweta Huna invaders, the White Huns, and he succeeded. He made a promise to his people that he would not sleep on a bed and he would not eat on a plate until his work was done of defeating the Huns. He would sleep on the ground, on the floor, and he would eat on a plate. And he kept the promise and he defeated the Huns. Now, yeah, that is admirable. You can call him a real-life Bahubali, but that is the duty of a king. He was simply fulfilling the duty that he was bound to fulfill. So yes, in today's world, when you have leaders who are not leaders at all, who are actually uh, serving themselves, if you look at India's politicians today, I would say, I would not say all. There are some really good ones, some really good genuine leaders. But overall, I would say a majority would be self-serving people, especially at the lower levels. Not all again, but some, maybe many. So in, in today's world, this looks like an anomaly, a ray of light, right? But that is how it was always supposed to be. So Skandagupta was fulfilling what's called his Raj Dharma. He was fulfilling his duty as a king. And that's how it should be. That's how a leader should conduct himself or herself. Tejas says, who are the Tushar people? In the Mahabharata, they are explained as Mlechas and they fought war on side of the Pandavas. They are said to be descendants of the king Yayati. If they originate from Yayati, how can they be Mlechas? Are they essentially of Indian origin at all? What is the meaning of Mlecha? This is a good question. So let's start with the concept. What does Mlecha mean? Mlecha means barbarian. The Greek equivalent is barbarian. It means a person who is not civilized or not civilized enough. In the old days, the word Mlecher was used to de designate a person who did not fo follow the Vedic lifestyle, who did not, who, who broke the, 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 the precepts of Dharma in the Vedas. Even to a small degree, if you do that, you are a Mlecher. That's how it was. It has nothing to do with blood. See the term, I have used the word barbarians in the past. 
and some people have commented that why are you calling uh, indians barbarians no man i'm not calling indians barbarians so so a person is not a barbarian by blood a person is not barbarian by religion a person is barbarian by actions by their actions and their lifestyle and the thought process that goes on in their mind and, and the ideology that motivates them that is the only form of barbarism actions is the the visible uh, output of all that is a, is your actions so a person is not a barbarian by blood by religion only by actions if your actions are adharmic then you are a mletcher that's how it was so now with that in mind let's understand who the tushara people were let's let's take a look at the map i have to show the map at least once in every session otherwise the session is incomplete okay so this here is the map and if you go like so in the past i have said multiple times that there were lots of waves of migrations of ancient indians vedic indians outside of india north and east of india uh, sorry north and west of india even east but that's not relevant here and these regions were called uttarakuru and uttaramadra now if you go north of india over here you have the uh, this region here it is the tarim basin region this is the takla makan desert it's now called the takla makan desert it's a turkic word and this was the region of the tushara people they are now called tokarians because they don't like to use the sanskrit term tushara the west so they have destroyed this term mangled it and they call it tokarians so the tokarians lived in this region and as you say they must have been descendants they are they are clearly descendants of indians because when you analyze their dna 9 out of 10 of the ancient uh, remains you find there have the r1a1a uh, haplogroup which is of indian origin so clearly they are of indian origin but but it's interesting that many of them have red hair and blue hair uh, sorry blonde hair so they have indian origins but they have some other ancestry as well they intermix with some other people i guess and uh, they lived there for for a long time so they were called tokarians where the indian in origin well let's take a look at their alphabet okay let me show you so let's take a look at the script that the tokarians used to uh, for writing so this is the tokarian alphabet the vowel signs the consonants so this is the tokarian script the consonants go as ka kha ga ga na cha cha ja ja na ta ta da da na and so on which i think you all know what it is right so clearly these were an indian people and indian origin people they spoke a language their their language is classified as a santam language not as a satam shatam language which would indicate it is more western in origin but over here if you see the script and the way it is organized it is completely uh, derived from sanskrit so you can see the indian influence there so the answer is very simple uh, they were very clearly uh, yes they were very clearly people of indian origin i think i'm back so so that's the answer the tokarians the tokarians where is the question where is the question the tokarians okay so so the tushara people are the tokarians that the west speaks about today their mummies are found in uh, in the tarim basin river region in present day western china but 
they had stopped following the vedic culture properly they would have followed it to some extent but some things they had changed and that's why they were classified as mlechas even the persians would have been called mlechas because they stopped following the precepts of of the vedas and they started their own new religion or whatever what, what zoroastrianism and so, and so on so that is the definition of mlechas they are mentioned the, the, the tushar people are mentioned in the mahabharat and they are most likely the tukarians that we find north of the himalayas their remains are found today because their culture is destroyed uh, what happened was that the turkic invasions happened of this region and all the entire indian origin people were defeated because they were too civilized even though they were mlechas they were still too civilized and uh, the the turks the huns etc were too militaristic and they were focused only on conquest and that's what, that's what they were able to win and the turks killed off all the males took all the women and the same story which we see everywhere and their descendants are the uyghurs who are who still somewhat look like indians but they also have turkic features so that in short is the story okay next question Pinkline Cabs says, how does quantum mechanics explain the reason behind smelling? What's its cause? So smell, the sense of smell, smelling, it is a biochemical, uh, it has a biochemical origin. So when you smell something, what happens? When you have, let's say, a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, a nice flower, let's say you have a nice flower. And I take the flower, let's imagine this is the stem of a flower, and I take the flower, it's close to me, or maybe it's far away, but I can still smell the fragrance of the flower. How does that happen? How am I able to perceive the fragrance of the flower from a distance? It's because the flower, the surface of the flower, it releases certain substances into the air certain chemical substances into the air, which are fragrances. It does this for a certain reason, to attract insects, which will pollinate, which will help pollinate, it take its pollen to another flower and pollinate the flower. That's the reproductive process of, of, of plants. But this fragrance, these chemicals that constitute the fragrance, they, they disperse all over the air. And then they enter our nostrils, and they settle on the bed of the inside part of our nose, on, on, the, on the surface. And that's where you have specialized nerve cells that interpret each new chemical signature as a certain smell. So it's a biochemical process. Same goes with food. You cook a certain kind of food, it has a certain smell. It's because it's when it's hot, it's releasing off this steam. And uh, the steam also contains, not the steam, uh, the vapor steam yeah it also contains other chemical signatures of the constituents of the food and that cocktail of chemical inst uh, con uh, constituents let's say you, you cooked a bunch of vegetables potatoes carrots beans uh, coriander all that all of that combines together to create a specific overall signature smell that you can recognize the dish immediately from that so it's when those uh, chemicals go into the nose and they are analyzed by specialized cells and they are that information is relayed to the brain that's how the entire thing is processed and that's how the sense of smell occurs and sense has a uh, smell has a very strong correlation with, with memory 
you may have forgotten some memories but you if you smell something that's linked to that memory you will you can it can bring back very ancient very old memories from your early childhood etc which you had kind of forgotten so it's a biochemical thing uh, at the, at the basis of biochemistry you always have quantum mechanics but that is uh, not needed to explain how smell works so good interesting question Pushpendra Singh says, in your old, in your very old videos, you gave book suggestions for quantum mechanics and dark matter. While doing self-study in this type of topic, how do you overcome the difficult topics which weren't easy to understand? Is it maybe a weird theory? Quantum mechanics is weird. Long derivations, complex mathematical models. Can you suggest some tips to understand difficult topics while doing self-study in respect to fields like physics, mathematics, engineering? Look, when you start a project, you need the right tools. you go for an archaeological dig you will need shovels spades buckets you will need lidar and various other newer instruments you need the right tools and you need to know how to use these tools when it comes to physics the tool is very simple it's mathematics when you talk about quantum mechanics there is a certain level of mathematics you need to know you need to know linear algebra you need to know differential equations and many other things matrices etc 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 you need to be really proficient at that mathematics otherwise there's no point studying quantum mechanics so that's the first tip i would give study your mathematics master the mathematics master every, all the mathematics that's needed to study quantum mechanics once you do that quantum mechanics will become a piece of cake then you will be able to see the actual concepts and and work through problems number 2 tip is solve lots of problems reading is a passive activity you want to actually master a scientific subject solve lots of problems that's how you get your hands dirty and go deep into it right number 1 master the mathematics number 2 solve lots of problems and what else can i say see when you are having a diff- if you if you have already if you have already mastered the mathematics and you're good at solving problems and you're not understanding something there are two reasons either your teacher is terrible or the book is terrible it's as simple as that if you are a good student who has the tools to understand the subject and you're not able to grasp something it's because either your teacher is terrible or your book is terrible so if if you're doing self study from a book just get a better book right get a book that's appropriate for your level of understanding of the subject master that book work through all the problems then go to a higher level right so that's how it's done uh, which books to read i have given uh, the the answers in that uh, book recommendation video so that's how you should approach a subject if you are learning from a teacher then maybe the teacher is is uh, not good enough incompetent get rid of the teacher get a new one right so that's what i can say okay soham says soham neogi is it true that albert einstein sold stole stole satyendranath bose's theory of relativity e equals mc squared because bose and einstein communicated only through letters and einstein if einstein genuinely wanted to copy bose's theory there would not be any concrete proof no albert einstein did not steal satyendranath bose's theory of relativity he came up with that theory on his own uh, the special theory was published in one of i think five papers in the year 
all path-breaking, ground-breaking papers. And the general theory of relativity was published in 1915, I think, 15 or 1615, most likely. But there was indeed correspondence and communication between Bose and Einstein. What happened was that Satyendranath Bose came up with the derivation of the quantum statistics, which, which are now known as Bose-Einstein statistics. So he came up with the derivation on his own of these uh, quantum statistics. He sent it to a European, I think, European journal for publication, and they rejected the paper. I think there was at least one rejection, maybe multiple rejections. So they refused to publish his paper, even though it was original and new and valuable research. So I think because of this, Bose... Uh, sent a letter to Einstein with the paper asking Einstein for his opinion. Is this paper good enough to publish? Will you please kindly take a look because it is being rejected. So Einstein read the paper. He was impressed. What he did was that he translated this paper, which was in English, into German. He sent it to the uh, to the publication Analender Physik, which is a German publication, very famous. And he recommended that this paper should be published. That's what happened. And then the paper was published, but then the tag Einstein got attached to the statistics. So instead of calling it Bose statistics, people today call it Bose-Einstein statistics. Even though Bose came up with it himself, Einstein translated the paper into German and sent it with his recommendation to the journal. And when Einstein recommends something, it's done. So that is how Bose was able to get his paper published. But unfortunately, Einstein's name was added to his work. I don't think Einstein asked for that. It's just what the West, the Western world is like. It's all Eurocentric. And if an Indian has done something, there has to be some contribution from somebody from the West. So that's what happened. But as far as E equals MC squared is concerned and the theory of, theory of relativity, the, the quantum uh, theory, etc., photo, uh, photoelectric effect, all of that Einstein came up with these things on his own. Harshit Indoria says, in some of your sessions, you spoke about the transfer of scientific knowledge and calculus from India to the West via Arabian countries. Then why are Arabian why were Arabian countries not able to progress by leveraging the rich knowledge of India? Excellent question. Good. So it was the... Uh, so when the uh, Turkic invasions of India began, uh, these guys, the Turks, the the uh, Arabs, Turks, more mainly Turks, they noticed that India had this enormous, bustling, prosperous universities that, that were like, you know, incredible places with these huge libraries and so many scholars and all that. And they noticed that there was knowledge in India about very advanced science, very advanced mathematics, astronomy, even uh, Ayurveda, medicology, um, um, toxicology, pharmacology and various uh, herbs and medicines and all these things. They were fascinated with it. So they sent their uh, translators to India. Scholars who, who what they did was they learned Sanskrit and then they went to these universities. They requested access. They were given because we gave access to everybody, even to our enemies. So they got access to the libraries. They got texts. They copied these texts. They translated them into Arabic or Persian or whatever was the language at the time. Mostly Arabic it was. And then they took it back to the to the, to their world, to the to the Turkic Islamic world. Let's call it now. And that's how so much knowledge was transferred from India into the Islamic world. And this sparked off what is called the Golden Age of Islam. 
it was a renaissance of Islam in which lots and lots of new ideas came into Islam from India. It, all these ideas came into the Islamic world from India. And then they built upon that. And much of it was just codified into uh, various books. Kitab al-Hisab al-Hind. They actually explicitly gave the credit to Indians. That this was all the work of Indians. But in the West, they have denied this. They have tried to 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 make it look like the Arabs came up with everything on their own. Even though in the original text, they clearly mention it's come from India. So all these so-called polymaths of the Arabic world, Islamic world, were actually translators. Later on, there may have been some people who built upon that. But all the original work was Indian, 100% Indian. So that's what's part of the golden age of Islam, which lasted maybe a couple of centuries. Look it up. Then what happened? Why were they not able to progress further by leveraging the rich knowledge of India? Well, what happened was that Chinggis Khan happened. Chinggis Khan wiped out the kingdom of Khwarazm because they, they, they behaved badly towards his nation. Okay, so he retaliated and wiped the whole kingdom out. Khwarazm is uh, Persia and Central Asia. Their ruler was a Turk. Stupid guy. <laughs> okay, and then what happened is that Chinggis Khan's uh, after Chinggis Khan died, his son, who, um, his son, what's his son's name? Ogodei. Ogodei Khan became the Khan, and after Ogodei, it was uh, Monke Khan, Chinggis Khan's grandson, who became the Khan. Now, during the time of Monke Khan, what happened was that his brother Hulegu Khan funded westwards. And what Hulegu did was he attacked the Islamic world. At the time, the center of the Islamic world was Baghdad, which is in, now in Iraq. He uh, besieged Baghdad, conquered Baghdad, and flattened the city in the year 1258. And he almost destroyed the Islamic world. He almost uprooted the foundations of the Islamic world. And after this, the, the Islamic world did survive just barely. But after this, all scientific progress, all, all of these bigger things in life, they were all put on the back burner. Everything stopped. And the Islamic world went back to the basics. Military. Militarism. So all progress stopped after that. The golden age of Islam came to an abrupt and complete halt to an abrupt and complete end in the year 1258 with the fall of Baghdad to the Mongols. So after that, there was no progress and they stopped uh, valuing uh, knowledge. They stopped valuing science, arts, all that. They went back to more fundamental form of living and that's what happened. So that's why uh, they were not able to build upon the so-called golden age of Islam. It was destroyed, first of all, by this enormous cataclysm, the Mongol invasion, which they were helpless to stop. And after that, they, their entire lifestyle and their methodology, everything changed completely. It got transformed. And that's why they were not able to progress the way they should have. Okay, the Democrat says, if Mahatma Gandhi supported non-violence, then why did he want the Indian soldiers to fight in World War II and World War II, World War I and World War II? Well, Mr. Mohandas Gandhi... Uh, had very specific ideas about non-violence. He was fine with Indians <laughs> indulging in violence in service of the British. But Indians must not fight for themselves. That's that's the kind of non-violence he wanted. And, and not all Indians, certain sections of Indian society should never fight. 
should never fight for themselves for other for other countries for the foreign occupier of india yes you must fight they are our overlord they are our masters we must fight for them only if we serve them and are part of their empire will they be nice enough to give us a transfer of powers power on their terms and they will put their own people in power in india and that's what continues till today so mr gandhi was very clear non violence is for certain sections of indian society when it comes to defending themselves then don't fight don't defend just die otherwise go and fight fighting for the foreigners is great so how many indians fought in world war 2 two? two and a half million two and a half million 25 lakh indians fought in world war 2 for a fight for a war that had nothing to do with india they fought for the british how many of them died we don't even have the correct numbers so that is uh, mr gandhi's uh, form brilliant form of non violence user 007 says in 1971 with after pakistan surrender in the war why didn't india implement a martial rule or pa, or pakistan and reform reform its constitution and military in accordance with india's interest just like the us did with japan after world war 2 i've asked this so many times all right first of all let's understand something in 1971 india conquered east pakistan and liberated east pakistan from the punjabis and then india gave independence to that that part of india but india did not ever try to conquer west pakistan which it should have right when they are so badly crippled and so badly demoralized half their army is in our has surrendered why should india not have taken over west pakistan as well and finished the entire business once and for all so india did not do that and that's why they were not able that's why we indians since we did not capture west pakistan we were unable to uh, implement whatever you are saying martial martial law and a new constitution and military and disband disband the military or whatever we simply if we our political leadership did not wish to conquer west pakistan that's part one and again we gave independence to east pakistan we call it bangladesh now why we we conquered it by the right of conquest it was ours it was part of a separate country only for 23 24 years independence so called independence in 1947 if you add 20 years it's 67 so it's 24 years bangladesh was not a part of india only for 24 years we should have reintegrated it with india anyway today we have millions of bangladeshis running wild all over india so what was the point of letting bangladesh become a separate country india should have reintegrated this part of india which has been part of india for thousands of years it was outside the country only for 24 years we didn't do it and we allowed those surrenders surrendered soldiers who had con- con- conducted a horrific genocide in in uh, east bengal we just allowed them to go go back home without any repercussions that's what india did and again we could have done some changes in the geography of bangladesh for instance the chittagong hill tracts are not muslim majority now they must be by now they, they, they should have been reintegrated into india at least that much we should have done the chittagong hill tracts those that's actually part of the northeast northeast of india there are there are no bengali speaking there were no bengali speaking people there today as we speak right now there is an ethnic cleansing happening there by the bangladesh army they are burning villages of the tribals so called tribals all the all the people who survive are escaping to india and living in refugee camps and they are depopulating the place and then uh, 
reconfiguring the demographics of the place. So what India should have done, at least, at least this much India should have done, take back the Chittagong Hill tracts that would have given access to the northeast uh, uh, states of India by, by sea. We would have got sea access to northeast of India. Such incredibly short-sighted leaders we have had in, in India. And that's the reason why India is in the situation it is today. That's all I can say. Manorama Sahu says, could you possibly present an analogy as to why Putin, Vladimir Putin, walks with his right hand stiff by him? All top Russian officials do, Medvedev, Kasparov, Pavel Durov. Well, I don't know about the others, Medvedev, Kasparov, Pavel Durov, but I certainly know that Putin has a very distinctive way of walking. When he walks, his left hand will swing, his right hand is always at his side. It doesn't move. What is this? So we have to understand Vladimir Putin's background. He was a KGB officer. He was a field officer. He was stationed in East Germany during the Cold War. At a time when tensions were really high, he was a highly trained KGB officer. He was trained in all kinds of field activities, which includes weapons training and all that. And as a field officer of the KGB out there in East Germany, he would always have had a sidearm, a gun in his in his belt or wherever, concealed somewhere. And the first rule of of the of this kind of work is your your working hand, the right hand. I'm assuming he's right-handed. Your right hand never moves far from the gun. No matter what happens, it should be always next to the gun, gun, because you may need to use the gun anytime. So they are taught to walk like this. Use your left hand in any way you wish. Your right hand should be right next to the gun. It's called the gunslinger's walk. And that is a habit that was ingrained into him and all of their KGB officers. And I suppose it has never left him. So that's why Vladimir Putin walked like this. I don't know about the others. I've not seen the others, but I can answer about Mr. Putin. Interesting question. Akash asks, what are the chances of a Russian invasion of Ukraine in the coming months? What could be the U re reaction of the US and could it instigate the Chinese to launch an invasion of Taiwan, subsequently leading to a world war? See, first of all, nobody wants a world war. A world war is going to devastate all economies. Nobody wants their economy to be devastated. Neither does China want that. Russia doesn't want it. The US doesn't want it. So everybody wants to avoid war at all costs. The question is, what is the actual threshold for war? How far can you push things until you reach uh, the line of no return and then when we, people have no option but to go to war. And now we know what's going on in Ukraine. There are Russian troops mobilizing and all that. So people in the West, there is this big hysteria. Putin is waiting to, in, is, is getting ready to invade Ukraine and so on and so forth. So what are the chances of uh, an invasion of Ukraine? Well, you can never predict what goes on in Mr. Putin's mind. One of the fundamental principles of leadership is this. Never allow anyone to read your mind. Never let on to others what's going on in your mind. Always keep your plans secret. Always be unpredictable. So that is a dictum that Mr. Putin follows to the T. His actions are un unpredictable. No one knows what's in his mind. No one knows what his plans are. So maybe this is a big bluff. There is a possibility. Or maybe he's actually preparing to invade. Or maybe he's trying to draw attention away from something else. There are all kinds of possibilities. 
I would be foolish to try and read Mr. Putin's mind and predict what's going to happen. But let's assume, let, let's assume a hypothetical scenario in which Mr. Putin gives a go-ahead and Russia invades Ukraine. They will uh, take over Ukraine in a short period of time. They are overwhelmingly much more powerful than the Ukrainian forces. So let's say Mr. Putin launches an invasion of Ukraine. What will be the reaction in China? I can guarantee that if an invasion of Ukraine is launched, there will be a simultaneous launch, uh, invasion of Taiwan by the Chinese. Because that will draw the US into a two-front war. The US are duty-bound to defend Taiwan. And the Ukraine also is uh, one of their uh, some a country that they have a great amount of interest in because they want to un- encircle Russia. So, then the US will be in a dilemma. Whom do we deal with? Do we split our forces? Do we have, can we deal with two wars at the same time? Two very different wars and very different theaters. So, that is the case that could transpire if Mr. Putin is planning to invade uh, Ukraine. We know that there is a quasi-alliance between China and Russia. We know that there is a significant cooperation and coordination right now, even though the two nations don't really trust each other. But right now, they are on the same side because your enemy's enemy is your friend. Your enemy is the US. So, I can't say for sure if an invasion will happen. But if an invasion happens, it may be a sign that China will also invade Taiwan. So, that's what could happen. But will it happen? I'm not sure. Uh, because the US is still the overwhelmingly uh, superior power in the world. It's the sole superpower. It has the ammunition to take on actually two wars at, at the same time. It will, if it if it goes to war with either of these countries, with Russia or, to China, or with China or with both, it will, it will have to take damage. It will take damage, significant damage in its own soil. So is that, is it something the US is willing to contemplate? Is it something the US is willing to suffer? That's the question. So it's all about these calculations. You have to calculate what the enemy's position is, what his strength is, what their red lines are, until what level can we push it and before they are pushed past, past the brink. Uh, what is their de- deterrence, posture? So many things have to be considered. It's a big globe-sized chessboard that we are dealing with. And these are the things that uh, the world leaders have to contend with. So that's all I can say about this. But it's a very interesting uh, question. Okay, Rohan says, please explain our policy with fifth generation fighter aircraft, which India is planning to induct in 2020, 2030. Why is it so hard for India? Even China had has started mass production of J-20. But here we proudly inflate our chest saying AMCA will enter production in 2030. Is it worth a decade of wait rather than simply buying from other vendors when the geopolitical landscape is pointing to a big big conflict in the near future? Look, India had a very good fighter aircraft, homegrown fighter aircraft called the Marut in the 1960s. It was homegrown. It was our fighter aircraft and our politicians killed it. Firstly, they refused to equip it with a powerful enough engine they gave it a substandard ex- engine and then they just killed it off because they wanted to buy fighter aircraft from other countries because they were getting big kickbacks, big commissions for that. So that's always been the story. If we had not killed the Marut fighter project, we would have been able to 
iteratively improve the fighter jet, create new families of fighter jets from that one original design. And today, India would have had its own fourth generation, fifth generation aircraft. India would have had a four or five different kinds of fighter aircraft for different, which would fulfill different roles: fighter, interceptor, heavy bomber, or whatever else. Right. So, Indian politicians did not let this happen. If that was done in the 1960s, today India would have its own fighter aircraft, multiple fighter aircraft. Now, today we are the same position, right? We are building, we have the Tejas, we are building a new version of the Tejas, designing a new version of the Tejas, uh, Mark 2A or whatever. Uh, we have the AMCA, fourth generation aircraft, which which fighter aircraft which we, are, which we are building. We may have the twin engine deck based fighter also, which is a derivative of the, of the of, of these aircraft altogether. So we are now starting the process of creating multiple families of aircraft. Now, again, if we say, no, let's not do it because in the short term, we can just buy aircraft and let's do it that way. Why waste money on this? Then we will, in the next 50 years, again, be in the same position. Imagine if India had not invested in ISRO and designed and built its own rockets. Where would India be today? India is today a genuine space power. We can launch our own satellites. We have a constellation of satellites that take care of all our needs. You don't realize how important satellites are. This would not be happening without satellites. The Indian military would not have eyes and ears everywhere without satellites. The Indian Navy would not be able to coordinate without satellites. So because we invested in ISRO, that's why we are able to enjoy this and we are not dependent on other countries, Western countries, for these needs. So it is imperative that India builds its own aircraft, fighter aircraft. India needs to develop its own engines with foreign help or whatever, doesn't matter. Have your own engine and have a bunch of aircraft, two or three different families of aircraft, which we can then take forth in the next 20 years. We can even make better aircraft, fifth generation aircraft from there. I think the AMCA is supposed to be a fourth generation aircraft, which is still fine. It will have some stealth capabilities. There is also a flying wing project being worked on, completely stealth aircraft. Uh, so it needs to happen. In the, short, in, in the interim period, in the next five years, ten years, we can buy a few, maybe a hundred fighter planes from somewhere. Maybe the Rafals, maybe we can set up a production line in India if the French are willing. So we can always incorporate foreign technologies and all that into India. We can make it all part of Make in India. We have to become Atmanirbhar. The late General, General Bipin Singh Rawat was very big on Atmanirbhata, self-sufficiency. He was pushing towards that. He was trying to take the armed forces away from foreign purchases and he was trying to make the Indian armed forces self-sufficient with Indian weaponry and technology. That was the direction he was going in. His work was cut short. Let's see how it goes in the future. I hope it continues. But the story is very simple. We need to be Atmanirbhar. We need to make everything in-house, all our technology. We need to become a technological superpower like we have always been. And then we will export variants of those weapons to other countries. That's what needs to happen. Short-term vision is always going to be detrimental. Long-term vision. Think for the next 50 years, 100 years. Where does India want to be in the time? And then work towards that. So in the short term, you can buy foreign planes, foreign fighter jets, foreign submarines. Why not? But in the long term, we need to have our own technologies, our own homegrown technologies. That's what needs to happen. The Chinese are producing those J-20s and all that. They stole the designs and everything from, from the US. It's not their homegrown technology. In the early 2000s, there was this enormous coordinated uh, Chinese 
hacking program. They hacked the Pentagon, they hacked the US Department of Defense, they hacked all the all their vendors. This uh, this program was was codenamed Titan Rain. So they hacked everything. They stole incredible amounts of information, data, blueprints, uh, trade secrets, military secrets in the US, and they used those to build their fighter aircraft. So the, so the J-20, you can see it resembles the F-22 Raptor, which is an American plane. It's like a knockoff of that plane. So the Chinese have stolen other technology, which I have nothing against. Why can't India also steal technology? In in geopolitics, there is no such thing as ethics and morals. There are no rules. Whatever you can do, do. So that's just the principle. But uh, so I would say that India needs to be completely self-sufficient in the next 20, 30 years in terms of uh, military technologies and, and other technologies also. So India is pushing towards that. I think Prime Minister Modi is also pushing towards that. It's a very, very good thing for the Indi- for the for the nation in the long run. In the short term, we may have to buy things in the interim period from one or two other foreign vendors. Kingslayer Laksh says, should India exit from the no first use policy? So what's a no first use policy? It's a, it's a policy in nuclear deterrence. The no first use policy says that I am a nuclear weapons power, but I will not be the first to use nuclear weapons. If I am attacked by someone with nuclear weapons, I will retaliate with nuclear weapons. But I will never initiate a first strike with nuclear weapons, even if I am at war. So that is the no first use policy. India, I think, has a stated no first use policy. Some countries don't have a no first use policy. The Pakistanis don't have a no first use policy, which means that they are willing to be the first one to to use nuclear weapons. Right. So the question is, should India exit from the no first use policy? I think the Chinese also have a no first use policy. The thing is this, it doesn't really matter what you say. <laughs> it matters what you do. When when push comes to shove and you're in, in, in conflict, when there's a war, hey, you can abandon the no first use policy at that very instant and do whatever is needed. Right. Of course, there are entire military doctrines built around such policies. I'm not sure if India has a stated military doctrine. But uh, India, obviously, the military will always have all calculations, all possibilities in mind. They will calculate everything. If if required, they will even ditch the no first use policy. I think it's something that is used uh, more in diplomacy, etc. To an extent, to an extent, not completely. So it has a diplomatic component that we can say that, you know, we we don't believe in violence and we have no no first use policy. So that gives you a slightly higher bargaining ground or, or moral ground, whatever. And uh, so on and so forth. So even let's say India goes to war with China for whatever reason. And if the Chinese are doing really well and they are uh, on the verge of taking some strategically important territory, I think I don't see anything wrong with India doing first use. Why not? I mean, it's it's for the generals. It's for the commanders. It's for the highest level commanders to, to decide this. But in war, there are no rules. There is nothing right or wrong. There is nothing ethical or unethical. Whatever you have to place the nation's interest first. So if it comes to that, India should certainly ditch the no first use policy and go with the first strike if required. It's all hypothetical, of course. So should India have a stated no first use policy? I don't see any harm in having a stated no first use policy. There's no harm. It's just Words are just words. 
always look at actions when an actual war happens we will see so until then words are words and don't take it too seriously aniket says what will be the consequences if a nuclear powered submarine gets destroyed or has an accident well to see the consequences of that you just have to look at uh, past history and see you what happened with other nuclear submarines so for instance there were a couple of us submarines who that that uh, sunk that sank in the 1960s thresher and scorpion i think they were called two new nuclear submarines uh so the submarines are designed in such a way that even if the submarine sinks its nuclear compartment is sealed it doesn't leak out and uh, some submarines they they carry nuclear torpedoes warheads ballistic missiles icbms so those um weapons are also designed to not leak out that the nuclear fuel will not leak out they're designed to be watertight and very uh, compact so um and you also had a few soviet incidents four or five of these k k series submarines in the 70s 80s there was a k278 komosomolets which uh, sank in the barents sea in 1989 it was a very advanced submarine it was a prototype of some sort but it was fully functional or fully operational and there was a fire in the submarine it was able to submerge some sailors were saved but then it sank it's still down there in the barents sea which is north of russia and there have been some reports that some there is some leakage of uh, nuclear fuel or something cesium or something was leaking out at, at a very small slow rate so and then there was the terrible uh, submarine kursk disaster another k series submarine the kursk in the year 2000 uh, so so such accidents have happened in the past but they have never had uh, devastating consequences typically the way you build a submarine especially the nuclear reactor the nuclear compartment it is designed to withstand even a sinking and full submergence of the submarine and uh, the weapons are also designed to be able to just stay submerged and not leak out anything or uh, dangerous so essentially most uh, nuclear weapons warheads would have plutonium which is extremely poisonous it's a very harmful uh, element so uh, it's all built and designed in such a way that such a way that it will not be affected even if there is an explosion in the submarine for for whatever reason steam explosion battery explosion typically the nuclear uh, compartment is designed to be able to withstand that so thus far there has been never there's never been any nuclear submarine accident that has caused significant environmental damage but it's always a cause for concern so we know where those uh, shipwrecks are submarine wrecks are and those are sites are typically monitored periodically consistently so that we and and the radiation levels are measured in the region so that we know if something is going wrong in that case some action may have to be taken but thus far nothing like that has happened aditya says what are your views on japanese form of democracy they have a prime minister but many experts say that shinzo abe is controlling the government and he is still a major political figure in japanese politics even after the resignation and most of the time japan is governed by a single party either by coalition or full majority so the japanese form of the democracy is something the the americans imposed on it after the japanese defeat in 1945 in the second world war the the americans took over japan they occupied japan they allowed the emperor of japan to uh, remain the titular figurehead and the constitutional uh, 
authority monarch of Japan, but they they created this parliamentary democracy which Japan still follows. They the Americans wrote the Japanese constitution which is still followed, and it's the it's a multi-party democracy like we have in India. And uh, there have been lots of prime ministers who have come and gone. Shinzo Abe is one of the major figures. He has been uh, constant in Japanese politics for a very long time. Recently, he resigned because of health issues. But yeah, he's still uh, maybe the tallest figure in Japanese politics today and certainly in his party. Um, Mr. Suga was the prime minister until very recently. Has he stepped down already? I'm not sure. Uh, it's, it's kind of hard to keep track of the prime ministers in Japan. Uh, so how do we understand what's happening there? See, in any country which has a foreign system imposed upon it, like India today, India is not really free today. India has a foreign constitution, a foreign parliamentary system, Westminster system, which has been put upon us. It's not our indigenous system of governance. So we are kind of under our foreign occupation even now. But Japanese are still definitely under foreign occupation, under US occupation. The thing is this. In politics, you have a stated head of state, stated leader, prime minister, whatever. And then you have extra constitutional power structures and power centers. This happens in every country, not only in uh, quasi-occupied countries like India and Japan. Even in the Western so-called democracies, you have extra governmental, extra constitutional power structures and power centers. These are people, these are... These are networks of people who are extremely powerful. And at the top, you have really, really powerful people whose power actually may exceed that of the, uh, the, the country's government. And they can influence things in a variety of ways while staying behind the scenes. This is not some conspiracy theory. This is what you see everywhere. If you look closely, so even in Japan, you will have certain power structures like that. And Mr. Shinzo Abe is the most powerful person even today in his party. What, what, what causes power? What creates power? What is power? Power is all about networks. The more contacts you have, the more networks you have, the more people you can call upon when needed, that is power. That is a force multiplier. So I am sure Mr. Shinzo Abe is still the most powerful politician in Japan. He will still have lots and lots of allies in his party across the length and the breadth of the country, in the municipal councils, in the counties, everywhere. So that is power. That is real power. And that's what gives you votes and all that in, in, in a sense. So, um, so sometimes you have people who control the government from outside. Have we not seen this in this country, in India? You may have a prime minister who is not the most powerful person. There's somebody else who's controlling everything and who's the de facto ruler. This happens all the time. So is it is it the case in Japan? Well, I haven't examined the case, what's happening right now. But if it is true, well, then so be it. Mr. Shinzo Abe is a nationalist. He, he is a person whose stated aim is to take Japan to the next level and to reform the constitution and make Japan more self-sufficient and more militaristic because we have the big Chinese threat right next next door. So that has been his aim in life, in, in politics, in, in um, his political career. And maybe he's still guiding that to some extent, to some level, or maybe to a large level from outside the visible seat of power. It's possible. Okay, Krishna says, I was a devotee at a young age. I was very smart, successful after getting knowledge of Bhakti Yoga by uh, 
by somebody, Amogila Prabhu. My brain was very, very fast and intelligent after all these things. But my too much spiritual, by my too much spiritual knowledge, I was popular in coaching. But then an extremely bad boy asked me in front of everyone, what if I slap you in front of everyone? Will Krishna save you? If no, then cry and stop this nonsense of Hare Krishna. That was my last day of coaching because I had no answer. Maybe can you can give me. I do have an answer. So you are a devotee of Shri Krishna. Okay. Shri Krishna is an avatar of Vishnu. And this boy asked, said to you that I'm going to give you a big slap in front of everybody. Will your God, will your great Shri Krishna save you? If your God will not be able to save you, then shut up and get lost. And after that, you stopped coaching because you had no answer. Right. So in the Abrahamic religions, let's understand this. In the Abrahamic religions, God is an external entity. One God, a monotheistic God who sits high in heaven, judges everybody. And on judgment day, they, he will pronounce whatever happens to us. Right? To, to, to people who believe in that religion. That is the Abrahamic concept. God is an external entity. We And humans are all born in sin. We, humans are sinners. And we should aspire to do good things in life. And then maybe God will forgive us. That is the Abrahamic concept. Now you say you have studied uh, studied what? Bhakti Yoga, etc. Job meditation and all that. You have studied a lot of uh, the teachings of your Guru and Sri Krishna and all that. I suppose you were not taught this one thing. In the Dharmic world, in the Dharmic concept, God is not external to us. There is divinity in each human being. Why do we say Atithi Devabhava? It means that Every guest who comes to our house has an element of divinity and an element of God in him or her. That's why Indians worship nature. That's why Indians are compassionate towards animals because there is God in each living being. So now let's say this boy wants to slap you. Isn't Lord Sri Krishna inside you? The problem is Indians want to wait for Sri Krishna to come back one day. Yada yada hi dharmasya glanar all that, right? He made the promise that when things go really bad for dharma, he will come back. Here's the thing. <laughs> Lord Krishna is in the hearts of whoever believes in him and follows and walks on his path. So if you want God to act on the earth, on this in this world, God will only act through you. If you if you want God to change the world, walk the path of God, do the work of God, do the work of God, of Sri Krishna, follow his teachings, follow his path, and then you can say that God, Lord Sri Krishna is acting through me. So if somebody tells you, I'm going to slap you and will Sri Krishna help you, give him a punch in the middle of the face and say, this is a punch from Sri Krishna. End of story. Okay, this, okay. My procedure might be a bit incorrect. I came across a subreddit about Shantidas Gosai, a Hindu missionary who converted the Meithai people of Manipur to Hinduism and burned their holy text, Puya. What's the history of this? So this is what you will be taught in uh, by your leftist teachers, which is all your teachers, by your professors, your textbooks, that there was a Hindu missionary, Bengali missionary, called Shantidas Adhikari or Shantidas Gosai. He was a missionary. 
he went to manipur who he converted all the people of manipur converted okay what is conversion converted the people to to hinduism and burned all their holy texts that's the claim that is made okay so the truth is, is this guy shantidas uh, adhikari shantidas gosai was a brahmin he was a bengali brahmin gaudiya vaishnavism so now let's examine the history this this episode happened in the year 1717 i think so there has been the presence of hinduism of of dharma in manipur for centuries before that manipur is not on a different planet it right it's right in the northeast present day northeast of india the whole of southeast asia was hindu so there has always been a presence of manipur of of hinduism in manipur for a very 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 long time now what happened is that there was this king called pamaiba a manipuri king called pamaiba meidingu pamaiba he was in power in manipur as the king in the uh, 17th 18th centuries and he was again influenced by by dharmic concept or hinduism now look at this the meite religion the the people of manipur are the meite the indigenous people of the of manipur are the meite people their religion is called sanamahism it's always an ism in in western terms it is a polytheistic religion very ancient religion it's not a religion because there is no conversion there are no missionaries there is no baptism it's a spiritual th- uh, system just like hinduism they also worship nature they also worship their ancestors they worship certain gods they have a pantheon of gods and so on so what happened is that this fellow shantidas gosai he convinced the king pamaiba to adopt hinduism or gaudiya vaishnavism gaudiya vaishnavism as the official state religion of the kingdom of manipur kingdom of the kingdom of manipur was much larger at the time it also incorporated parts of burma which we have lost today okay so he convinced the king to make gaudiya vaishnavism the official state religion of manipur and then this king in his zeal went ahead and burned all these holy books these ancient holy books called the puyas and that is marked as a great black day today uh, and now it has all been interpreted in in the form in the sense that they claim that shantidas gosai came here came to manipur and uh, converted everybody and burned all the books listen shantidas gosai was not a warrior he was a brahmin he was a priest can some priest go to a foreign country let's say a priest shantidas gosai goes to afghanistan today will he be able to convert everybody to hinduism and burn all the holy books in afghanistan impossible it is the king who did that there was already significant elements of hinduism in manipur there were already temples built before that yeah and the king decided that we should all now adopt gaudiya vaishnavism because this guy is so convincing and the king went ahead and burned those books it is not shantidas gosai who did that but somehow they want to blame the brahmin for this i am not saying gosai was a great guy i think he was a piece of garbage for whatever he did whatever but the thing is it is the king of manipur who did these actions right so why is that not mentioned anywhere and then later kings of manipur continued the tradition of gaudiya vaishnavism and today we still have significant elements of gaudiya vaishnavism which are very beautifully uh intermingled syncretized with uh, sanamahism in in manipur people uh, practice both elements of culture sanamahism they have uh, sanamahism deities in their house statues 
idols, whatever you want to call them, murtis, and they also worship Sri Krishna. But today, after in the past 20-30 years, this entire uh, narrative has been constructed in Manipur, in other parts of the of the country, that this Hinduism is a uh, is an imposition upon the people of Manipur. It was imposed by force because apparently millions of people must have been slaughtered, really? So they say it was imposed by force. It is all Brahminism, Brahminical patriarchy. So down with Hinduism and convert to another religion. And they don't convert back. There is no, First of all, Gosai was not a missionary. There are no missionaries in, in Hinduism. And there is no conversion to Hinduism. The moment you start practicing elements of Hinduism, you are a Hindu. There is no conversion process. So these are all lies. And today people are being encouraged, encouraged to leave Hinduism. The Meite people are being encouraged to leave Hinduism in Manipur and adopt foreign religions, not Salamism. For instance, you had this uh, Sarita Devi, the boxer. She converted to Christianity a few years ago. And such things are going on. So it's all part of a larger imperialistic neo-colonial agenda. And India's academia, India's professors, India's education system is all a vital component of that. And the media. And the media, of course. So that is the truth behind all of this. I hope it throws sufficient light on the events. Okay, what shall we do? Let's take one more question for today. Let's take a couple of, I'll take two more questions. This is by Ashna. If peaceful protest is a nonsense concept, then how would a layman differentiate a violent protest from a terror attack? Hmm. Okay. Okay, good question. Let us imagine we are back in 1921. Today is 2021 December. What is December today? December 18? 18 most likely. This is December 18, 2021. Let's imagine we are back 100 years from today. December 18, 1921. India is under brutal foreign occupation. British occupation. Right? And Mohandas, the great Mahatma, wants us to protest non-violently. He wants us to protest for the Khilafat movement, but be non-violent. So Ashna asks, what is the difference between a violent protest and a a terror attack? So let's say some Indians disagree with Mr. Mohandas and they, they acquire guns and they ambush a convoy of British officers and, and they kill five people, five British occupiers of India. That is called a violent protest, a violent attack, or a crowd of Indians demonstrates and burns down uh, the magistrate's office or a police station, because these are uh, elements of occupation of India, of foreign occupation of India. That is a violent protest. Who dies in these protests? The elements of the occupation, the officers of the occupying power, they die in these protests. People who are helping the British subjugate, brutalize and occupy India, they are the ones who suffer. That is a violent protest. There are just causes for protest. When your country is against foreign occup- is under foreign occupation, you are fully within, within your rights to kill the occupiers in any way necessary. There is nothing wrong with that. So that is a violent protest. What is a terror attack? A terror attack is when you attack, injure, kill, innocent, unarmed citizens. A violent protest against the foreign occupier will target the foreign occupier and nobody else. 
a terror attack will target the unarmed and innocent civilian population it is as simple as that and that's all i have to say about this okay one last question <laughs> what came first the chicken or the egg i don't know if why people ask this question but okay what came first the chicken or the egg well neither came first what came first was dna the molecule of life if you look at any organism on the planet earth whether it is viruses whether it is bacteria whether it is single celled organisms whether it is very low multi celled organisms whether it is tardigrades whether it is crustaceans whether it is plankton whether it is sea life or earth life land life or birds whatever they all have one single thing in common dna dna is the fundamental building block of life it came before the chicken or the egg or anything and that's the big mystery what we actually are we are carriers of dna our sole purpose our sole biological purpose in life is to reproduce and pass on the dna and combine it with the dna of other members of our species so what came first was neither the chicken nor the egg it was dna and the question is where did this dna come from and that's the question of the origin of life did it spontaneously appear on earth through some strange chemical reaction which we don't know about or was it seeded from elsewhere the panspermia theory and that's why uh, that's why people are seeking now uh, scientists are seeking uh signs of life on mars europa titan etc um europa titan and some other moons of jupiter and saturn where conditions may be right for at least uh microscopic life to be there so in the next 20 30 50 years we will send probes there we will analyze uh, the the atmospheres and the the environments of these planets if we find any multi, any microscopic organisms we will have to first look for dna do they have dna if we find dna elsewhere it means that dna was seeded into our solar system from somewhere else so that's what i can say so before the chicken before the egg you had dna all right all right my friends thank you so much for all your questions wonderful questions very interesting questions really enjoyed it uh, i hope you enjoyed it too and uh, i will see you in tomorrow session live long and prosper <laughs> bye take care